morning, church. If you would please stand for a reading of God's word and turn with me to Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Your bulletin inserts have next week's verse, so look to the screen for the correct verse. Beginning verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days... He was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go into the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have found, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the name, for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. All right, this morning we are in Acts chapter 9, and we get to an extremely important part of Acts, an extremely important story. And I, I get the sense that Luke has kind of been antsy, trying to, trying to, wanting to get to the story. He actually tells the story three times over the course of, of the book of Acts. Luke's, of course, Acts is Luke's account of the early church. Three times he tells the story of Saul's conversion. Saul, who many of us uh, know as the Apostle Paul. And it's worth saying at this moment, a lot happened, and we're going to look at it, but one thing that did not happen was a change of name. So people think this is the moment when Saul became Paul. Actually, Saul and Paul are the same 
same name. It's just Saul is the, Israel, the Hebrew way of saying it, and Paul's the Greek way of saying it. It's like James, if I'm Jaime in a Spanish-speaking country, and Giacomo in, in Italy. Um, so there's, there's no change in name here, but there's a change in this apostle title that we'll, we'll talk about as well. But most scholars, it's important, I think, to hear. Most scholars would say this, in this passage, these events are the second most historically significant events in all of the New Testament. Second only, of course, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because this is the moment that changed everything, not only for church history, but really for world history. And it's historically significant because of who Saul was before his conversion and who he became after his conversion. So before his conversion, Saul is a really significant person in in Israel. Saul was born to Jewish parents, Jewish parents who had uh, Roman citizenship that was passed on to him, which we're going to see later is very important. He called himself uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. If ever there was a Jewish pedigree to be had, Paul had it. I mean, maybe better than anybody. And he hated Christianity. I mean, you, you heard this. You, you remember back in Acts chapter 8, he's pulling these Christians out of their homes and parents in front of their children, taking the jail. He was present uh, at Stephen's execution and he approved of that execution. And here we see all these reasons that Saul should be the most unlikely person ever to give his life to Jesus Christ. He hated Jesus. He hated all his Jesus people, hated everything that was said about Jesus, devoted himself to the eradication of Christianity. And now he believes. And afterwards, of course, he would become the apostle to the Gentiles, taking Christianity to, to the ends of the known Greek-speaking world. He would change the course of the church, change the course of human history, and he is very likely the most well-read, that sounds like I'm talking about him, he is the author that is most read in the history of humanity. So we have this giant um, this, this Christian giant, probably the most, outside of Jesus, the most influential Christian who has ever lived. And of course, he would be imprisoned and executed because of his devotion to Jesus Christ. So we have here somebody who is killing people for following Jesus, and he himself ultimately gives his own life to follow Jesus. I mean, this is a major moment in Christianity. And I was thinking about Saul's conversion. Because probably in all your Bibles, it's, you know, it says something like Saul's conversion. That's the main point of the story. But as I was looking at his conversion and all the wonder and the miracles and how dramatic it is, it really hit me, actually, most of what we're seeing here is true of every conversion that has ever happened in the history of the human race. And so I want to I walk through this amazing story, and I want to show you from Saul's conversion, what is true about all of our conversions as well and why that should matter as Christians. That's what I want to do. So we're going to start the story in verses one and two, and we're going to see what's true of Saul and all of us is that without God's intervention, we will all oppose God. That's the first thing we see. So again, Luke records in Acts 8, 3, he says, but Saul was ravaging the church. That word ravaging is important. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this word ravage, it's, all the scholars and commentators point out, it's, it's weird because it's, it's, the only, it's the only time we've, the word is used in the New Testament. There's only one other place in the Bible it's used, and it's in Psalm 80 talking about a wild beast ravaging somebody. And then you hear Luke say he's breathing murderous threats. And you know he's already condemned Saul, condemned Stephen 
to be stoned to death. And you have this picture of this beast of a man. He's ravaging, he's breathing murderous threats, and he's hungry for the blood of Christians. I think that's exactly what Paul is, excuse me, what Luke is wanting us to have as a picture of, of Saul at this time. So Saul desperately wants to contain this new sect. He, he, he wants it to contain it to Jerusalem. He doesn't want it to leave, but his problem is that it has left now. It's not only in Jerusalem, it's spreading, and specifically, specifically it's spread to Damascus, which is bad because there's some large and very important temples in Damascus, and he doesn't want this cancer of a sect that, that people are spreading to spread to Damascus because that could create some problems. So Saul goes to the high priest and has the high priest drum up these, uh, these orders that allowed him, gave him the authority to go over to Damascus, Damascus, find anybody who ascribes to what was called the way at that time, because they didn't, they didn't even call Christianity Christianity. It's so early in the faith. Anybody who ascribes to the way, who professes Jesus as a Messiah, Saul now has the authority with papers in hand to go and arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem to deal with them properly. So basically what Saul has are extradition orders at this point. Can you imagine a person who is less likely to give their lives to Jesus and and be a Christian? I mean, you may feel like your neighbor is far off. You may feel like your sibling is far off, but are they breathing murderous threats against every Christian that they meet? You may feel like your child is far off or your grandchild is far off and unlikely to give their lives to Jesus. Are they trying to murder every Christian they meet? I mean, there may be some terrorists somewhere far off that have this level of violence and, and dedication to the eradication of Christianity. I've personally never met anyone with the dedication to the eradication of Christianity that we're reading about here with Saul. But what I want us to see is that all of us are this far gone in and of ourselves, in our sinful state. All of us are this gone. Now, we may not be violent about it. We may be apathetic about it, but we're still all this far gone in and of ourselves without God's intervention. And I always feel like I need to say at this point, because this comes up, I, I say this often. I mean, it comes up in scripture often. In and of ourselves, we do not have the ability to see Jesus as our only hope. Because we're sinful and sin has ravaged all of our faculties. Sin has ravaged us physically, emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically. So we don't just need more information. Oh, and then we'll give our lives to Jesus. We need something more. And this isn't like a niche reformed doctrine of some sort. Like this is Orthodox Christianity. This has been well fleshed out from the beginning of the church and probably most famously through a theologian in in the fourth and fifth century named Pelagius. So you may be familiar with Pelagius, but he was teaching very publicly that we do have enough good in us and morality and spirituality to see Jesus as the answer and, and give our lives to his teaching. So that's, that's what he's teaching. And famously, Augustine said no, because that would be a form of saving ourselves. Jesus has to do something. The Holy Spirit has to do something to overcome our inability to respond to Jesus because of the sin in our lives. And at the Council of Ephesus in 433, I think, uh, Pelagius was officially declared a heretic for saying, we can in and of ourselves come to Jesus. What's interesting about Pelagius is that he is explicitly teaching what's basically implicitly taught from all the other heresies before him. And what was being implicitly taught is 
you don't need Jesus to save you. You, you, know, you, you can, in and of yourself, devote, you to his, devote yourself to his teaching, but you don't need Jesus to save you. And they came in various forms, like you don't need Jesus to save you, or Jesus can't save you because uh, he was all God but not man and can't sympathize with you. Or Jesus can't save, uh, can't save you because of the opposite. He's all man and he's not, he's not deity, so he, he can't save you. Or maybe he, he did, he, on the cross he showed his love for humanity, but he did, it didn't actually affect you in any way. So implicitly in all of these heresies, they're saying Jesus either can't save you or you don't need Jesus to save you. And now this is explicitly being taught by Pelagius for the first time. And that's, that's important because what Pelagius is saying is basically, yeah, you're bruised up spiritually, Okay, we, I, I'm acknowledging that, but you can still mend yourself. That, that's what's being taught by Pelagius and why he's declared a heretic because all of Orthodox Christianity has always said sin is that bad. None of us in and of ourselves can come to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit has to do something to overcome all of that. Romans 10, Paul, again, we're, we're looking at his conversion. He makes this really clear. As he says, all have gone astray. All have sinned. No one can seek God, not even one. And he tells us why in chapter five. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and spread, death spread through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. So we are, by virtue of being in the line of Adam, sin has come to us. And it's not like a passive disease that we catch like COVID. We are born in active rebellion against God, unable to see Jesus as our only hope, just as unable as Saul was in our natural state. And not only are we not going to seek Jesus, we don't even know that we should seek Jesus. <laughs> we don't even know that we, sh- not only do we not know how, we don't know that we should. And because we don't know that we should, the way we live our lives just reinforces the sickness that's ultimately destroying our bodies and our souls. So the plight is bad. And this is what Saul is doing. He's living a life that is reinforcing the sickness that we call sin in his soul that is ultimately destroying his body, his mind, and his soul. And we follow the same pattern unless the Holy Spirit intervenes in some way. I was listening to a sermon this week and this pastor made, I thought, a pretty good point that applied here. He said that our natural state, especially in Western culture, is to go inward, outward, then upward. And so what he's saying is we're naturally going to go inward to consult with our own desires. We want to see what is it that we desire. Then we're going to go outward and find a community of people who would affirm this, our desires and who would uh, protect us and build us up in a way where we could fulfill these, follow and fulfill these desires even more. Then finally, we look upward and create a God who's going to be okay with what we're doing. We create a God who's going who's gonna to affirm our desires and this community, but we need to be sure not to do it so strongly that in three to five years, I can't just change, change my whole system if I want to. But when the Holy Spirit intervenes, something very different happens. We look upward first. First, we consult God. Then he gives us inwardly different desires and he calls us into a community, the church, that is going to come around us and reinforce the desires that God has on our life. And now, because of the Holy Spirit, that we have as well. It's a very different process than what we see outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what happens 
in our natural state, we, we, without even knowing it, we go to all these different things to feel better about living as a fallen person in a fallen world. So we go to work to feel better. We go to money to feel better. We go to degrees to feel better. We can go to lots of things, social status to feel better. We can even go to good things like spouse and kids to feel better about ourselves, not knowing that what we're really doing in that moment is going to these things and asking, are you my savior? Work, are you my savior? Money, are you my savior? Degree, are you my savior spouse and kids? but they will never give us the satisfaction that we desire because there is only one who can deal with our sin issue and that's Jesus Christ. But like Saul, we will not see this on our own. Our our eyes need to be opened and that's the second part. This is what we see in verses three through nine. God must open our eyes. That's the second thing that's true about Saul's conversion and true about all of ours as well. So we're back with Paul. He has his extradition papers. He's headed to Damascus with a few other men when suddenly, I love that word, suddenly light shines, light from heaven all around these people. And they hear this voice. And I imagine that it's a booming voice. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which Saul says, Lord, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I mean, just think about that, that what Jesus is saying right at that point. To persecute Jesus' people is to persecute Jesus himself. Jesus' people is actually an extension of Jesus in some way. I mean, that's a degree of identifying with his people that you won't find anywhere else, any other worldview, any other worldview. Give me a, a deity that actually identifies with the people, much less to this point. Not only that he empathizes and sympathizes and understands, but he feels our very pain that we feel in this world down to very specific and current losses and pains and fears and persecution. So we have Saul who's on a mission to kill Jesus' people, on a mission to eradicate the message of Jesus, and he is now bowing at the feet of Jesus. This is incredible what we're looking at. And all of us, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it's the same. It's just as much of a miracle as it is for Saul. And I know people, I want to give two different ways I hear hear an objection or or at least a, a good question. One group of people, unbelievers, would say, well, yeah, show me Jesus and I'll give my life to him. <laughs> like, show, I, I, it'd be nice for me to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ, but until that happens, I'm good. Another way the question is asked is from a, from a Christian point of view, God, I want so-and-so to believe. I want so-and-so to, you know, I want my, my sibling to be, believe, my neighbor, my child, my grandchild, why Why won't you do that with them too? Why won't you show them yourself the way you did for Saul? And these are good questions that I do want to address. So there's going to be about four pieces to this that we need to look at. First though, and probably most importantly, seeing the risen Lord Christ will not change a repentant heart. Remember, there were lots of people who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ before his ascension who did not believe. Because when we say, if I could just see, what we're saying is there's information that I, that like I will be saved by information. But remember, our plight is so bad, our sinful minds can't process information the way that we need to, to see Jesus as the answer. So just to see Jesus is just saying, I need more information. The problem's bigger than that. And you may, you, you know, you may think of the rich man and Lazarus at this point. 
So you, the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus a poor man, they both died. And Jesus is telling the story and he says, Lazarus went to Abraham's side, which is a very long conversation, but let's just say that's a good place. And the rich man went to Hades, which is a bad place. And the rich man said to Abraham, could you send Lazarus back to life? Please just send him back, warn my brother so that no one has to endure this terrible place that I'm in. And Abraham responded in Luke 16, he said, if they do, talking about the brothers, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Just seeing someone rise from the dead isn't going to convince somebody. We're too far gone. We need something greater than someone come, from, come back from the dead. We need something greater than seeing the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, our problem isn't lack of information. Our problem is that we are spiritually dead. So what must we do? <laughs> How does anybody come to Jesus then if not even seeing the risen Lord Jesus Christ is enough? Well, this is, I think, really cool. Paul tells us, Paul, who, who we're looking at his conversion over in 2 Corinthians 4, he gives us the answer to that question. How is it that any people believe? I'm gonna read 2 Corinthians 4, verses three, four, and then six. And even if our gospel is veiled, again, people can't see it. People can't understand it. Even if it's veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So what's the problem? Blindness. Blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's not a coincidence. He's calling it a light because that's what he saw. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Pay attention to that, that quotation. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what Paul's doing here, he's quoting Genesis. He's talking about conversion and he's going back to Genesis 1 where God said, let there be light. And light shone in the universe because God said so. In the same way, how does someone see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ? God says, let there be light. God says so. God says, and we see. The light is shining all the time. The problem is not Jesus's glory being seen in this world. The problem is that we can't see it. This is why we, we sing, I once was blind and now I see. This is what it comes from. And then you see in Philippians 3, there's a couple times where he goes back to this, this conversion. And he's talking about the, this, his conversion on the road to Damascus. And in Philippians 3.12, 3, he says, Jesus took a hold of him. So he's giving all the credit to Jesus here. Jesus took a hold of him. And the, the picture in your mind is bef before I could go arrest Jesus' people, Jesus arrested me. And Paul wasn't looking for it. It just, God said, let there be light. And there was light and it made sense. And he gave his life to Jesus. And that is true of all of us who have trusted in Jesus as well. And it's what we call sovereign grace. That's the, the theological term for it. He opens our eyes. He shows us our only hope is Jesus. He makes Jesus our greatest desire. It's grace because we don't deserve it. And it's sovereign because it's God who's, giving it to us. And if we could get it on our own without God's sovereignty, then it wouldn't be grace. So the whole thing kind of breaks down. We call it sovereign grace. And if that's true, if that's how any of us enters the kingdom, then we should be the most bold about sharing Jesus with other people. 
Because it's not up to me convincing somebody to change their heart and come into the church. It's up to God who says, let there be light. I just get to be a part of the process. And it should make us the most humble of people. Because not for God's sovereign grace in our lives, we would be no different. We might be making very self-destructive decisions because we're operating out, we would be operating out of our natural sinful nature. So we should be bold. We should be humble because of God's sovereign grace. This week, in God's sovereign providence, uh, I got to hear uh, the testimony of a good friend. I got to hear pieces that I hadn't heard before. And this, his testimony was that he was, before, before knowing Jesus, he was an atheist. And, and a, very, uh, a very good atheist. I mean, th- this brother's smart. He knew his stuff. He was well-studied. He knew how to poke holes in the miracles. He knew how to point it seemingly... Uh, seemingly inconsistencies in scripture. He knew how to point at real inconsistencies in church history, how we act in accordance to, to what God tells us. Uh, he, he, whatever the area, whether it's history, religion, science, philosophy, whatever it is, this brother n- probably had forgotten more about those topics than the people trying to witness to him had ever even learned in the first place. Yet he believed. And do you know how he believed? It wasn't because he met his intellectual match. <laughs> It wasn't because somebody came in and said, I can beat you on all these points. It's because some brother came to him and said, I just feel led to tell you that God loves you and people are praying for you. And not too much later, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Because it's not about information. It's not about meeting your your, your theological match. It's about God saying, let there be light. Now, God is this brother is using those same giftings and skill sets and time instead of, instead of tearing down people in the faith and tearing down the faith, but building people up in the faith. And what's really interesting, because we're talking about God's providence, and we see this word suddenly in our passage, but God's providence, and this isn't my unique observation, actually most commentaries talk about this, God's providence started well before the road to Damascus. And so you can see ways that God is making is preparing Saul for this very moment, for what he would do for the church at large. I mean, we can think of, of Saul as just simply the, I know he's called the apostle to the Gentiles, but really what's going on, he's the apostle to help Jews and Gentiles figure out how to exist uh, together in the same church. I mean, this is the whole book of Romans is just, this is what this is. So he's the apostle to the Gentiles, bringing the gospel to the ends of the known world, but he's doing it in a way where Jews and Gentiles are, are in harmony. And to do this is going to take a unique person with a unique pedigree. I mean, you have to be a Hebrew of Hebrews to be able to convince everyone that circumcision is no longer necessary. You need to be able, it takes a person like Saul who would attack the church so vehemently to be able to communicate the things that he's communicating about Jesus Christ all over the empire. Because he was a Roman citizen, he could say things the other apostles couldn't or, well, they could say it, but they'd be killed on the spot. There are just all these ways that God's providence is on display well before this walk to Damascus. And so I think it's good for us to think, like, what, what is it about, if you, especially if you're an adult, if you were converted as an adult, the person you were before your conversion says something about your calling as a believer now. And we talked about a brother who, who, who used his intellect and study and curiosity in, in, a, in a bad way, now in a way that builds up the faith. 
Now I think about my own story, and I've, I've shared with a lot of you that I, I've always struggled with a crippling fear of speaking in public. And, and I can go back before my conversion and see God already developing those things. I was president of the senior class at Florida State, and I was forced to, to speak to large groups of people. It terrified me, but I just had to do it. I was president of my fraternity, and I was called to care for and lead a very messy group of guys. And th- those were ways that God was, was, before my conversion, building me to something that he was ultimately going to call me to do. And some people are wondering, are you saying we're as messy as the fraternity? You're not as messy as the fraternity. But all churches are messy. All groups where there's sinful people, there's going to be messes. And God, I can see the way that God's sovereign grace didn't just start my senior year. He'd been working these things into who I am because of what he was going to call me to do by no merit or virtue of my own. So, what are those places for you? Again, if you're converted as an adult, what are those things where you, there's ways you can see God's sovereign grace on your life, even poor conversion? And I would go so far as to say it even includes those, those places of shame. God working through there that he might be glorified through your life on the other side of the conversion. And then some of you, you just grew up in a great home, grew up in the church. You have no memory of not trusting God, but the same thing is true for you. Just think about it. God has shown you that he needs to come to you even before ever having a memory of coming to him. That's pretty cool. All right, and here though, we do get to the elephant in the room. Is it fair? Is it fair that God would give grace to some and not to others? Does that make God unfair in some way? And I wanna hopefully lovingly push on this and say that when we ask that question, we're assuming that God owes someone something. That's the underlying assumption in that question. But grace is grace because it is undeserved. And if all of creation exists, that he might just give you grace. You're the only person. He's fair. Actually, he's more than fair because fair is that none of us get it. God owes nothing to anyone. He is indebted to no one. He he doesn't owe anything in the created order, anything, especially Sinful humans who have rebelled against him. We deserve nothing. And Paul, actually in Romans 9, answers this very question. The question is, God unfair? 9.14. What shall we say then? Is there, Romans 9.14, excuse me. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? What's Paul's answer? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And I know it's a hard question, but I wanna promise you that on that day when God's, all of humanity comes to the throne, all of humanity is at this judgment day, lots will be said, but no one, neither those who receive grace nor those who receive judgment, no one on that day will say God was not fair. But I still haven't le- answered the second part of the question. Why did Paul get to see Jesus? <laughs> still, okay, even if all, none of that would have changed the outcome, the Holy Spirit has to work on heart, that would have been cool for me to see Jesus. Why didn't I get to do that? And the answer is because you're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. This is Jesus's call on 
Paul's life uniquely to be an apostle. And one of the main requirements is that you saw and spoke with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke's making this really clear because there were other men there. And he says, they didn't see Jesus. They heard the voice, but they didn't see Jesus. Only Paul saw Jesus because only Paul was being called to be an apostle, the very last apostle. And that's when Paul gives his life to Jesus, which is the third thing that is true of all of our conversions. This is, these are verses 10 through 19. We must give Jesus our life. We're not passive robots. And lots of what I said up until this point can feel like I'm just this passive robot. We are not passive robots in any way. When the Holy Spirit comes and he opens our eyes, when God says, let there be light, we call that regeneration. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is giving us a free will for the first time in our life. And with that free will, we then freely and gladly and joyfully and willingly choose Jesus. Tim Keller said, God has sovereignly ordained that we would freely choose him. John Stott says, divine grace does not trample on human personality, rather the reverse, for it enables human beings to be truly human for the first time. It is sin which imprisons, it is sovereign grace which liberates. So if we must give our lives to Jesus, if we must commit our lives to Jesus, because we want to, freely, what does that look like? Now this could be a sermon series that, you know, goes all the way through Christmas and maybe beyond, but I can point three specific things in in Saul's life, they're going to be true of us. What does it look like to commit your life to Jesus? First, we need to go to Jesus and say, what should I do? Our heart should be that, that we want to do what Jesus wants us to do. And that's actually, I I told you, Luke shares this story three times. And in, and each one gives you a little bit, it's a little different perspective, all consistent, but in some places you see things that you don't know. In other places in, in chapter 22, Uh, Luke records that when Jesus came to Saul, Saul says, Lord, what should I do? I mean, there's just, I'm done. I, I will do whatever it is you want me to do at this point. So before we get more concrete about what does it look like to commit our lives to Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, is that our hearts, is that like that our heart question? Are we going to Jesus and just asking, what should I do? What do you want from me? Really willing to hear and do whatever in the world it is that he tells us. Because until we get to that spot, we, we just can't go any further. So are we asking the same question as Paul? Second, what does it look like to make, commit to your life to Jesus? Saul commits to the church. He, ca- he connects to the church. And so he, he goes to Damascus and he meets his brother Ananias. And this is a different Ananias than we've already met. It's just a, they both have the same name. And I think this Ananias is one of the most underappreciated brothers in church history. I mean, you look at what you got. Jesus goes to him and Jesus says, hey, by the way, the most dangerous person in the world to all Christians, I want you to go to him and tell him you're a Christian. I mean, and, and likely at this point, Ananias has heard that Paul has this extradition orders from the high priest. He knows what he's done to Stephen. He knows what he's been doing. And God says, yeah, that's, I, want, I want you to go to his house. And Ananias does it. I mean, this is, a, this is a brave brother. And he goes, and what he does with Saul is simple. He connects him to the church. Saul is baptized and Saul is discipled. And so, I mean, I think, I don't know that I've ever had a single application that I've repeated so many times in one year as I have this year. But because of the season of the church that we're in, because we do actually have a large percentage of new people, I've been really pushing connect to the church, (laughs) like really connect. And 
it's, it's in this text. So I'm going to say it again. Connect to this church. And that looks uh, different ways. Those of us who have been here for some time, we need to be better at reaching out to new people. Those who are new, we want you to connect to the church. Maybe, maybe being baptized is your next step. If you have questions about baptism, you can go back to my sermon from two weeks ago. I talk about it. I'm happy to meet in person too. And be discipled. And so discipleship is both organized and organic. So there's an organized piece here. So we have equipping hours, formation groups, community groups. We have children's ministry, student ministries. We want to create some organized environments where discipleship can happen, where we can grow in our knowledge of the Lord. But our hope is there would be an organic piece too. Oh, before I go to organic, we have Discover OGC tonight. So if you're not a member, you can come tonight. I don't think we can get anybody childcare this late in the stage for tonight, but come tonight. Four o'clock to 5.30, we meet right here and we just talk about what it looks like to connect to OGC. And our hope is that from those things, something organic would develop. People you're in relationship with who can pray with you, encourage you, show you things in scripture that you didn't see before. That, by the way, happened to me this week as I'm processing this passage with some other friends. Then third, committing your life to Jesus means sacrificing your will for his. And there's one really uncomfortable part of this passage. You may have noticed it. Verses 15 and 16. So Ananias has heard the news. He's reasonably nervous and not sure. And Jesus says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And it sounds like God saying, don't you worry, I'm going to punish him for all that he did. That's not at all what's going on in this text. What Jesus is saying, don't worry, he's going to come to you in a humble spot. Because these three days he's blind and I'm giving him a humbling vision of what serving me is going to look like for him. It's not a punishment. I'm I'm telling you he's going to arrive in a spot where he's willing to hear. I'm currently showing him a picture of the suffering that he will experience for my namesake. And the dude suffered. I mean, lashings, beatings. I can just do 2 Corinthians 11 here. Lashings, beatings, stonings, imprisonments, anxieties, dangers, sleeping out in the cold, exposed. And at the end of all of it, he's beheaded. I mean, that's a suffering life. But Paul doesn't take on that life as if some sort of servitude to God. He doesn't take it as a punishment from God. He glories in the opportunity to serve God and glorify God in that way. He takes it on because he, he's his will, he's let go of his small will for his life and he's embraced God's great grand will for his life. And I think we can all look back 2,000 years and say, praise God. Look, I mean, humanly speaking, the church might have not have ever left J- Jerusalem if not for this guy's ministry. So praise God, he took on that suffering to glorify God in that way. And 2,000 years later, Paul's in heaven and I think the words that he wrote about suffering in this current life, he would only feel and admonish to us all the more. Romans 8, 18, Paul, in the midst of this suffering, said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that will be revealed just makes all the sufferings that we experience almost just go away because it's so grand. So committing our lives to Jesus, it means that we will willingly and joyfully give up illusions of our own grandeur because of 
God's glory and grandeur has already come into our life. So that's the story. That was the day that Saul saw Jesus for the very first time when he decided he was no longer going to live for his glory but for God's glory and the day that he freely for the first time and joyfully chose to give his life to Jesus Christ no matter what that meant. That day that he said, what should I do? I'll do it, just tell me, what should I do? And I want us to see that that's the same for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. He has opened our eyes, he's paid the price, and he's called us into a life of fruitfulness where we should joyfully and willingly desire to do whatever it is that he wants to do to glorify himself through us. That we might be freed from, from, like, from these petty glimpses of some kind of glory that we can create on our own and freed by an exposure to the glory of God. Praise God for what he has done in our lives and may we give our lives to him in the same way that Saul, also known as the Apostle Paul, did as well. Let's pray. God, we are a people who is thankful, who are thankful. God, we come to you knowing that we have nothing to offer you, but you love us and you, you made a way for our eyes to be opened, for our hearts to be changed, and for us to, as rebellious as we are, freely, willingly, desirously choose you. We know that that came at a great cost, and we pray that we would be worthy stewards of your word, of your spirit, and of your plan. We love you, and we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.